And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here again to have another conversation that I'm hoping helps your business grow. Now, we're all chasing the dream. We're all looking to do something and build something that's bigger than us or something that cashes a big check, makes a huge difference. The thing is, there's a lot that goes in to that whole story. We're going to get into that today. Now, before we get too far, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. With me today, I've got Richard Lau. And Richard's currently the founder of Logo.com, a really amazing site that has generated over 10 million logos for business owners. It does a whole lot of stuff, but he's also the former founder and owner of Resume.com, which he led to a successful exit in 2017. We're going to talk about what it takes to get to that point. Richard, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thanks very much, Matt. I'm, uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. And I appreciate the Canadian, uh, the Canadian visit. So, uh, yeah, repping, repping, uh, Vancouver today. So <laughs> yeah, that's it's actually not... kind of early there, man. I got you up early. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's okay. It's not, it's not snowing yet. It's, it's still only August. Um, but yeah, no, we're happy to be here. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's show, why don't you give us a little uh, bit about your backstory and, and what brought you to today's episode? Certainly. Um, you know, I've, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. I did some some crazy stuff when I was a teenager, you know, getting coupons uh, from from a local store and then selling them um, right outside the amusement park for uh, for cash. And you know, just some some fun, um, some fun, real, um, very much hustly uh, type of, of things. But, you know, I went to university. Uh, graduated with a marketing degree and didn't really know what I was doing. And uh, some friends, um, you know, said, "Hey, let's uh, let's sell beepers." And I'm, I'm starting to age myself here, but um, sell nice. beepers up here in Canada. Um, and so we we put together a little company. We were selling beepers. Um, we were the first ones um, to do it. And you know, we ran into cash flow problems. Um, merged with a you know traded PO purchase orders for jobs at a larger company. And then um, my former partner um, said, hey, you know, there's this internet thing. And so um, he went off and started up a dial-up um, ISP. And I came over and gave him some advice and some consulting on the side, um, just on the operational side. And I started to talk to some of his customer service reps who were dealing in domain names. And what they were doing is they had um, a couple of real estate agents who would call them and say, hey, I want to register Libya.com or weed.com or, you know, um, they were just doing countries because that's, you know, location, 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 I guess, for real estate agents. And they were charging them a hundred dollars um, per domain to send in the email. And I was like, Hey, I bet I could, 
play around and, and figure out a way to do this online. And so I, I got a script together um, for $50, um, plugged it into another script that would send an email, talk to a guy who had uh, domain name servers. And basically, I, I scotch taped and, and, uh, and strung some, a, a little website together. And it, uh, it allowed people to search for and register domain names. And so that um, became a domain name registrar. And then, you know, it's like out of left field, I got hit by a bat, um, you know, by, by a baseball on the side of the head. And, you know, I'm flying high, I'm doing six figures a month and boom, I got diagnosed with colon cancer. And um, oh, wow. yeah, and so, man, if that's not a, uh, a kick in the head, um, it, uh, it really changed the trajectory of my, of my life. And so I was 30 years old. My son was three months old. We just moved to a new country and, you know, um, I, I basically, you know, long story short, um, I survived it. Um, but I merged my company very quickly, um, um, without doing, you know, exit, you know, doing an exit really, um, to a company in California and, um, fast forward a year and I'm left with a severance check and the, you know, the $4 million company that I had 12 months prior is, has evaporated. Um, so that, that's, uh, that's, um, something that I think we could dig into. Um, and then from there, I got back to Vancouver with my severance check and I'm like, man, what am I going to do now? And so I got back into domain names, um, buying and selling. And along the way, um, got to, to build my own portfolio of domains and one at a time, we pull them out and develop them into real businesses. And so we did that with resume.com, 10 staff, local Vancouver office, um, you know, a real live um, profitable business and sold that to Indeed and uh, did that with a conference business. And now we're doing the same with logo.com. It's a name we've owned for seven years, um, but now we've, we've got a local office, we've got staff, and we've been working on it for coming up on two years now. So a quick question and, and congratulations on the, you know, the at overcoming adversity, because especially at a younger age that can, I've seen people that have just really not ever gotten back on track from a lot of that stuff. And, you know, like much like COVID did to us, the world has a tendency to throw some curveballs at you. And, you know, like, it's just, uh, you know, it, it recently, my wife said something to me, she's like, how are you dealing with all this stress? I'm like, I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. I'm just kind of used to the, the yo-yo, you know, that, <laughs> that up and down effect. Um, yeah. So I, I have a question going back in the history a little bit. So the with the domain names, were, were you doing just registrar stuff or were you, cause at one point I knew a couple different people that, you know, early in the internet game and I'm using air quotes there were doing it like, Oh, they might have own like birthdaycakes.com and they had created some significant passive income from those things. Cause they basically turn into just many link directories. You don't see that as much now, but you know, I'm looking back at your history and you were, you know, you were doing domain stuff in 2002 and yeah. Uh, you know, almost 20 years ago, it, well, 10 years ago, it was still wild west on the internet. 20 years ago, people, people, some people were still talking about how the internet was a fad. Right. 
Well, I mean, you know, my last name is Lau, L-A-U.com, and people are like, oh, wow, you must have paid a lot for that name. And, well, actually, I hand-registered it um, in 1996. So that's uh, 24 years ago. So you can imagine um, it was more, it was, it was even crazier than the Wild West. Um, I stayed up three days in a row, um, and I, I just uh, kept sending you, there was no, there was no system. It was just like some guy back East would run a delete script on, on names that hadn't been renewed. And, um, you know, I, I knew that loud.com was coming up for, um, expiration, but I didn't know when. And so I just, my wife thought I was crazy, but I just stayed up and I just kept sending, you know, this was the days of TCP IP and Winsock. you'd have to connect and, you know, anyway, yeah. Um, I finally got it after three days, but um, so that's 1996. Uh, 1999 is uh, is when I actually started the registrar, um, Names Direct um, and Domain Direct, and we, um, you know, we, yeah, it was it was an insane time. But it was just registering domain names, and I was so busy registering domains that I didn't take the time until after um, you know the disastrous exit. Um, to see how these guys that I was registering names for um, were actually making money um, doing that. So I was the guy registering birthdays.com for people for $20. Um, and, and so I was selling shovels instead of actually using the shovels myself. Well, we've talked about that. And oftentimes in a gold rush, the people that make the most money are the people selling pickaxes and shovels, not right. actually out there mining for gold. Now, and, and for those to give some context to some listeners that might be a little younger than, than, we, are, than we are, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of people early in the internet, it was just very common to go to like birthday.com or weddingdresses.com or something like that. And there were people that were making significant passive income because uh, they would have thousands upon thousands of domain names sometimes, and they would just basically were serving up Google ads and and different stuff. And that was a very common practice. Now, that said, you might not think about I, I knew several people that became millionaires from doing that or from domain, just literally buying and selling domains. Now, it was once said that you should buy real estate because they're not making any more of it. Then they made the Internet. Yeah, <laughs> and that that kind of cast a shadow on that. Now, as we're talking about, uh, you know, preparing for an exit, you let's talk about the one that didn't go that well, um, because I, you know, as I talk to a lot of people that are seeking investment, everyone seems to want they're they're very uh, self conscious about losing control or who they're going to partner with, and you know, sometimes I think uh, those concerns are a little uh, a little over. Uh, they're a little overly cautious, but there's certainly situations like the one you mentioned where uh, you're owning and you're running your company. And next thing you know, you're walking out the door with a cardboard box and a severance check on top of it. So like, what were some things that in preparing for an exit? And that was an exit, maybe not the kind that, that <laughs> founders are hoping for, but what were, and, and I don't want to get you in hot water, but what were a couple things that you learned from that experience that led you to the next one that was truly a successful exit? Right. So, you know, I mean, I, 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 I look back and I make the excuse of, oh, you know, I, I had cancer and I was, um, you know, dealing with that, that stress and I was distracted, et cetera, et cetera. But really, um, you know, if, if I had had um, better advisors um, or if I had you know, listened to, to anyone about, um, you know, how to do an exit instead of just blindly jumping in, 
um, you know, I, I would have, I think it would have been an entirely different story. Um, but what some of the, the fundamental mistakes that, that um, we as a team made is that we shopped for our own purchaser. And so we didn't engage a business broker. Um, so, and, and even if you do have your own purchaser in mind, um, it's still extremely valuable to bring in a business broker because they have done this, you know, two, three, 400 times. And, you know, you're dealing with the, your very first one, right? So it's like, um, you know, it, it's an imbalance that you need um, an advisor who is a professional in this. And so, yeah, sure, you're like out balking at their fee, whether it's 5% or 10% or 15%, whatever that percentage is, um, they're going to earn it um, because your, your risk on not using them is a lot higher than that percentage. So the fact that we didn't use a business broker uh, meant that we were going into this um, blind, you know, so we're, you know, just to give you an idea of the numbers, we're, we're worth, say, $4 million, and they're worth um, 100 120 million. And so, you know, already you're, you're um, lopsided. And so the second thing is that we were going in as um, not an all cash deal. So it was part cash, part stock, um, part IOU. And so, you know, the cash was fine. Uh, you know, cash is king, right? So that, that and for us, we had debts that we needed to pay. Um, and, you know, that was, we had a tax bill, we had lawyers, those, those guys don't, don't accept um, stock in, in a company. And so um, that was the cash deal. That, that was that took all of the cash that was part of the deal is what I'm saying. So then you're left with a small IOU and you're left with a, we were left with a small IOU and a, a stock. Now you're like, oh, great. I've got stock in this company. Now, wait a second. You're buying this stock. That's, that's where we failed is we didn't recognize that, hey, we, as much as these guys are doing dil diligence on us, we are doing diligence on them. And we kind of had the, the you know, uh, <laughs> The, the God factor, like, oh, my goodness, you know, these guys are worth $100 million, you know, um, we don't really need to do due diligence on them. They're, they're, they've already made it. Um, but And they, they sent us over stacks of due diligence because, you know, of, of papers, because they're a big company. But buried in there um, is this um, equity investment from an, a billion-dollar company that has put money in and... Um, it's basically they're investing money, but that money is then used to purchase services from that same company that is making the investment. And that company then has an option to purchase, um, the, the company that's buying us, um, for, you know, X hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, when you look at that, it's got, I don't know if you if your listeners remember Enron written all over this thing. Right. It's just it stinks to high heaven. And um, if we had seen that in the due diligence, we w it would have given us pause. But we, you know, we didn't see it. Uh, we didn't ask about it, um, you know, and our if we had had a business broker, he would have gone through the due diligence. He would have found it and he would have said, hey, guys, this is not right. Um, and sure enough, 
um, after we had done the merge, um, the company that had this billion dollar company that had this option to purchase looked at this and said, if we go through this, somebody's going to go to jail because, you know, this money that is invested in the target company gets kicked back to us. And then we're supposed to buy you guys based on that. Like, um, no, we're, we're, we're not, you know, this is our last phone call with you and um, we want our money back. And then we find out that not only was that that investment, that $30 million investment, a it wasn't a, it was a convertible debt. So they're now saying, hey, you it's a demand loan. We need we've converted it from an investment into demand loan. So now you owe us $30 million. And I'm sitting, you know, in my office and I'm like, you know, the 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 uh, the company that I've merged in with is suddenly doing a fire sale and they're saying, hey, we need to sell stuff to, to pay off this loan. And they turn around and they're like, you know, the most valuable asset that we have now is the asset that Richard just vended in. So we're going to put that up for sale. And Richard, your debt is behind these guys. So you're not going to get paid anything. So that's... Uh, uh, you know, and, and so so I'm going to break that down for just and 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 simplify it maybe a little more. So that convertible note that came in from the intermediate company. So you have three. You have Richard's company. You have the company that's acquiring them, and then you have the company that's invested in the company that's acquiring them. When you set up a convertible note that is set up to either convert into ownership of a company, or like he said, it could turn into if you don't take that option or something doesn't automatically trigger it then you're in a spot where you owe money. And, the, you know, a lot of times with convertible debt, they will be, it'll be triggered by different events or timeframes or stuff that could occur. But there are ways for whoever issued that to say, no, we actually now two or three years later, which is a typical gestation period on a lot of these things, they'll look at it and maybe they say, you know what? we don't really want to own stock in your company anymore for whatever reason. Now, in this case, it was at no fault to you, but it put you in that, in that waterfall that was currently dropping very quickly on people's heads. And in that case, the, the middle company needed to do something to service the debt, making it very easy to say, well, look, we've got this guy's stuff. And when Richard's talking about position, and this is what you have to be very careful of, because there's a lot of times when you'll see, you can see exits that occur and some investors get shut out completely. You would think that everybody that put money in would get X, Y, or Z, but often there's preference and payment terms. There's built-in returns. There's like a whole bunch of stuff that can basically take all the gold out of the leprechaun's chest prior to it making it down the line to you. And is that a fair summary of what occurred? Absolutely, Matt. Thank you. The, you know, sometimes my wife so, said well, that, you, 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 I, that I rambled, but that's a perfect summary. Exactly. Well, but it's, yeah, and that's, and honestly, that's, that's the role I try to play sometimes because it's just like, you know, look, this stuff's really confusing. And I remember my first go at this and I had gone out to Manhattan, like in New York, Manhattan, and I was talking to some very sophisticated people. And I did an afternoon meeting the day that I got there and I realized I was in way over my head after that meeting. And I'll never forget because I stayed up that entire night, like pounding coffee and pound and learning like everything that I needed to learn. Cause I was like, holy shit, I can't, cause I'm used to doing stuff in my head. 
you know, and figuring it out. And so I had to like really teach myself the forward, backward, like all the different mechanics of like all this stuff and did it like overnight. I showed up the next day and the guy that was hosting me, he was like, dude, what did you do last night? I was like, did you have you seen that scene in the matrix where Neo plugs the, you know, I know Kung Fu now. And he's like, you, you might, but the thing is, is a lot of that stuff, it's, it's very confusing and understanding where you stand in the pecking order is a very important part of creating partnerships. Because if you are preparing for you lucky enough to I say luck, I don't believe in luck, or you work hard enough to get to an exit, eh, you might, it might not be everything you, you thought it was. So, okay. So, and so not only do you not end up getting paid, you, you got fired. Um, so basically it, it kind was, of, right. Yeah, definitely. It was actually an all out, um, battle, you know, it was a boardroom battle. Uh, you know, I was integral to the asset and they tried to sell it without me. And, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, I, basically had very difficult conversations where I threatened to do things that were not legal, but were moral. And they were doing things yeah. that were legal, but immoral. And, you know, we, we, yeah, I, I basically moved back to Vancouver, um, even though I was still working for them, um, had an office here and they were trying to get me to quit. Um, and they were trying to get me to accept six cents on the dollar. Um, and, you know, we, they basically discovered that they could not sell the asset without me. And so we ended up getting, um, you know, 30% of this, of the value of what it was sold for, um, instead of, you know, 6%. And so, um, but it's a far cry from, from, uh, you know, number one, it was a fire sale and number two, you know, what happened to that other 70%? Right. So um, for me, it was um, an absolute uh, an absolute disaster. Right. It was a really a 90 percent loss of, of what I had owned a year prior. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely an exit. You know, I had my cardboard box and, um, you know, what was surprising to to people in my circle is that like, oh, wow, you know, you're back from California. You did that big tech thing, you know, rah, rah, rah. And you're like, dude, I lost it all. Right. And, um, and, you know, even my severance check, I had to split with my partners. So, you know, I came back and I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Right. I've got my, my son is now one year old. Um, we're back in Vancouver. Um, I don't have a job. Um, you know, my, my, the last company I built was a disaster. Um, where do I start? And so just like the friend that you were talking about, I jumped into both feet with um, buying and selling domain names as a broker and setting them up to, with Google ads. And, um, you know, that's what I did for the next uh, 10, 12 years um, working from home. I was like, I don't want to have a, a three offices around the world and work 100 hours a week. I want a lifestyle. Right. I, I don't even care about building something that I can sell. I just want a lifestyle that I can spend time with my family, work from home and and have fairly low stress, um, for, you know, relative to uh, relative to working 100 hours a week, um, but still, you know, not the same kind of stress as, uh, you know, low stress as just having a job. Um, so it was still an entrepreneurial it was still, you know, eat what you kill. Um, but it was, uh, about, yeah, about a dozen years of, of buying and selling domain names and building up a domain portfolio. 
what brought you to resume.com? Like what, you know, now I'll tell you that one of the things that with, with a resume or an often con, outside the U.S. often referred to as your CV, your curriculum vital, is it vitae or vital? Yeah. I don't know. I, I have a couple hundred employees in the Philippines and they don't know what a resume is. That's always CV, but um, I've learned, you know, there's uh, having, oh, I don't know, the last 20 years, I've hired hundreds of people at this point, whether it was for another company I work for or for my own. And, you know, the struggle is real with the resume um, and people aren't very good at representing themselves. So, you know, and, and the history of this is, you know, you're getting into this in 2013. Now, 2013 doesn't sound like a long time ago. This was still like, okay, so... I saw Skype came out in 2009. That's when it first started getting used, you know, and like you look at some of the, the dating, some of these things. And, you know, I often compare. So I started uh, my first business out of the extra bedroom in my home. And people are like, well, 2009, that's not long ago. I'm like, okay, that was iPhone two, <laughs> you know? And like you, you, then all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, that was forever ago. <laughs> So, I mean, did, I'm assuming that you picked up resume.com somewhere in a, in the domain brokerage and buying phase. Is that how that began? Yeah. So a partner um, approached me um, and said, hey, we've, I, I see resume.com is up for sale um, and that resumes.com is probably also acquirable. Um, you know, are you interested in, in buying this together and let's build a business? And so we, we actually, because we're in the business of buying and selling domains, we see lots and lots of domains coming across. Um, and, you know, not everyone is, is something that you want to develop a business into. Um, indeed, you know, most of them are not. Uh, but with resume, we, we could see what a clear path for building a business, um, you know, building a resume builder, how, how people would, um, would use it, how we could monetize it. And so we, we bought the names um, within six months of each other. And, you know, it costs us well over seven figures, well into the seven figures. And, you know, but we, um, uh, we then started to build a resume builder. And it's kind of like the ignorance of, uh, you know, you think it's, uh, it's just you know, a few forms. Um, and, you know, if yeah. you're doing it now. Down, down the rabbit hole, down yeah. the rabbit hole. Absolutely. But by the way, I want to I I talk about something real quick because you bought resume and resumes.com. Now, right. I, and I know why, because I've, I've learned a similar lesson. So I'm the founder of Gigabook and I launched gigabook.com. And when we started telling people about it, they'd be like, I'm going to Gigabooks and I don't see your site. And like more people were telling us that than they were, hey, we found your site. And I, so I bought gigabook.com for $500 and I was right. like, fuck, this is like a great <laughs> deal. This is awesome. And then I had to pay five times more for gigabooks.com <laughs> only to redirect it to gigabook. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's why you bought the plural version too, right? That's exactly it. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're, I, I one of my, our earlier sites was called my domain and I would be speaking with people and they would refer to it as my domains. And, you know, you couldn't, it's just, it's just like, you know, it's easier to buy the, the plural than it is to, to, which is, which is often harder than you think. Cause here's yeah. the thing is like, in some of that, like I had to kind of gently slide in to making an offer for that. Cause I knew if that, if that seller knew I owned gigabook.com, then I, they could feel like they had me over a barrel. 
Right. And, you know, I mean, they were already asking a lot more. Like I said, I went from thinking, and that was nowhere near what you're paying for those domains. But I mean, when you think you got a great deal on something for 500 bucks, and then you find out you got to spend several grand just to buy a domain that you're only going to, you know, these, these are the things that you learn along the way that might not seem obvious to some, but, oh, I look back at it. I'm like, shit, why didn't I think of that? Right. I mean, you know, what you're trying to avoid as a competitor that's resumes.com that does the exact same thing you did. Right. Exactly. And, you know, when you're talking about planning for an exit, your your domain name strategy is uh, and branding strategy is part of that plan, because if even if you see, um, you know, a lot of people see a domain name and they see that it's listed for sale and like, oh, those domain squatters, blah, blah, blah. You know, hey, no, that is an opportunity. Because um, if you see a domain, let's say, you know, you're starting as uh, gigabook.com, um, but you're, but it's for sale for 5,000 and gigabooks.com is for sale for 50,000, but you could start with gigabook.co for registration fee, right? Um, so let's say it's 50 bucks. And so, you know, you, you can't, you have this progress here. You can say, okay, I'm going to start my minimal viable product on gigabook.com co for 50 bucks and once i see that it's going i'm going to buy gigabook.com for 500 and then once that i'm going then i can go to graduate and i'm going to buy gigabooks.com you know the plural so you you can have this progress um but if one of those is owned by a competitor then what are you going to do right it, it's um, or, or someone that just wants a stupid price <laughs> yeah Yes. I mean, like that happened. Like I did that with one of the a different book that I published and uh, I can't remember what the domain was, but you know, I wanted it for my book and I reached out to the seller and he's like, I want $50,000. And I was like, <laughs> really? Like, this isn't even like a good, like it was like a nine letter. It was, I, right. I couldn't see where it was coming from, but yeah. you know, like you said, as I think that what we, what you just mentioned, is like not the right strategy because you don't have control over that. You can't guarantee. So in, in my, in my book, million dollar bedroom, I, all right. So Dick's sporting goods. Yeah. Um, are, this is kind of a, a laughable thing. So people would, if you forever, if you went to dicks.com, it certainly was not Dick's sporting goods. <laughs> right. Those men were not playing <laughs> the kind of sports that you wanted to buy shoes for. So yeah. You know, and I don't know what I, I can only imagine like that had to be a massive issue for that chain. They, now they acquired it eventually, but I mean, here's the thing is when you only have one buyer and one seller, like that's not an auction. That's not, I mean, that's two people and two entities trying to find an amicable thing. And like, here's the thing is like in the dicks.com case that, I mean, that was a male porn site. And they probably made a hell of a lot more money off of selling that domain to the sporting chain than they did off of the website. Because in that case, you're like, Hey, I got to, I'll take my time. I'll just hold on to it. Like how much longer do you want to be embarrassed? Right. All right. So, so with, with resume, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, you go into starting this and now up to this point, you had been large, a domain broker, and done a lot of different things. And now, like you mentioned, I think that you, you said a couple of things uh, why I commented, oh, and down the rabbit hole. Um, it's easy to look, especially in 2013, it was easy to be like, oh, we're just going to build a couple of things. And, and, you know, like it'll probably take like two months 
And then we won't have to do anything because <laughs> yeah. I'm used to passive income and I won't have to do anything. And like software is done and it's, it, you can finish it and it, it won't be hard. And I have a feeling you learned that that wasn't the case. Is <laughs> that, that, was, true? that was so not the case. We ended up uh, building three versions of the website over seven years. Um, and each time you're building a new version, you're literally <laughs> throwing the old one away. Yes. Uh, yeah. And each one costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, it was a, an incredible learning experience and an expensive one, but um, we delivered, um, you know, a, a fantastic experience to our end users. Um, but, but you know, the um, I also exited while we were building resume. I also exited a conference that I started and, and sold, um, and that gave me that going through the due diligence of selling the conference gave me an insight of, hey, this is what people are going to want to see when when they're buying resume so it actually gave us the ability to say hey you know when we're building this third version um let's make sure we do this let's make sure we do that let's make sure we get it what, what are what are a few of those things what are a couple of like the main things that that um a buyer wants to see it's it's not that it's not the wild west that you have a, a what's called a data room that can that contains all of the contracts all of the licensing um, are you paying for everything that you're supposed to be paying for? You know, you've got uh, 10 employees. Are you paying? Is, does your license show that you have 10 employees? You know, it's not that like, hey, you know what? If I can be sneaky here and save $15 a month by claiming that I've got eight people instead of 10, you know, that's going to come out from the due diligence of the purchaser. And they're going to be like, you know, that's not good. You know, there's a risk factor there that someone one of your employees is going to whistleblow on you and um you know and so then we're as part of a risk factor we're going to mark that down and we're going to reduce that out of the purchase price um so you know cut, taking shortcuts um is going to uh, is going to bite you um in, in the in the butt uh, when you're going through the due diligence when you're actually doing an exit um so making sure that you're not cutting corners making sure that you're got all of your contractor agreements in place, all of your employment agreements in place that you're, you know, um, avoiding all lawsuits, you know, that you're, you know, that you're being a good and decent corporate citizen um, because it's all going to come out in the wash. Every skeleton that you think is buried is going to come out in the wash and in, in the due diligence and any skeleton that um, exists or may exist um, is going to affect the purchase price. And so um, conversely, everything that you do right is going to protect your asking price. So when you're, um, when you're putting your leases in place, when you're putting your software licenses in place, um, everything that you're doing right um, is, is not an exercise in futility. You know, when you're doing admin work and you're like, oh my goodness, why am I filling in this stupid government form or why am I doing this? um this paperwork you're doing that for your potential purchaser you're not just doing it to to have it done um and so having those um um those um data points uh, ready for your potential purchaser it's a lot easier to do along the way um that and you know you're you're you've got this in mind even you know when you're not uh when you don't have a purchaser or an exit um, in place, you're just, you know, you're planning for your, this future wedding, you know, um, and you're, it's, it's very, 
vitally important to be able to protect your asking price. So a data room is as a term that some will be familiar with and some might not, but a data room, there are actual platforms that can help you do a data room. And then honestly, man, like I've in the past, I just use a Google drive. Yeah, um, exactly. Some of that, I mean, it's that simple and like some certain things that you'll commonly find. So one of, uh, and I'll tell you that, so at full scale where we're not seeking outside investment, we still update our own data room about once a quarter. Cause we never know when we're going to need that stuff. Like if you need a bank loan or you need anything else. And the thing is, is like the, it, the, the sum of all the parts uh, equals a lot of time bandwidth and energy. So if you're, if you feel like you can just literally have a couple people at your business, drop everything that they're doing to get your data room up to speed, uh, then go ahead and wait, but it's best to keep it going. So certain things you'll see like basic corp corporate documents, certificates of incorporation and, like capital stock, security, financial statements, uh, tax returns showing you don't have like a massive tax liability that you've actually filed your taxes, properties and assets, things related to intellectual property, any trademark documentation you might have, um, assets and liabilities, which is a, uh, you know, like a cap table who actually owns your business, who, what investors may have unexercised options. Um, oftentimes you're, they're going to want to see information like, you know, at full scale. And once again, today's episode of startup hustle is brought to you by fullscale.io. We don't service a huge number of clients, but if we, in our data room, we have to be prepared to say who they are, what percentage of our business is per client. Cause having one client that's 50% of your revenue is not attractive. Um, and just like a whole lot, and it goes on and on and on. Now, here's the thing is if you have to stop what you're doing and prepare this, like, dude, it can literally be, you can literally do that. It's going to stop your business. And um, so keeping that kind of, this same information is going to be needed or necessary in a lot of different cases. It could even be needed just to like upgrade the insurance policy at your business or something else. Like, and maybe you want to get a bank loan. Maybe you want to do just a couple different things. And so now here in the U.S., the, when we did PPP, the the stimulus relief, we had our shit ready. So right. we were like first in line because <laughs> we were ready. We had been prepared. And, um, you know, that that's important stuff. So it, if you don't, and here's another thing. Let's just say it, whether it's an exit or an investment, not not having any of that stuff ready, also, it's, it's a little bit of a red flag. Like, hey, can we get your financials? You're like, um, yeah, <laughs> soon. Yeah. yeah, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I, uh, we were just talking, um, having a family discussion about business. And uh, I can't remember. I think it was Van Halen was the was one of those early touring bands, you know, and they had a they had a full scale um, band show, you know, stage show. And they had in their contract, you know, all of the things that needed to be done. And it's a safety, you know, they got pyro. Um, uh, and one of their clauses was, you know, in the dressing room, the M&Ms, they couldn't have any of the brown M&Ms. And the people were like, pounds, oh, they're green M&Ms. Yeah. Well, really, it was a signal. It was like, hey, if we go into the dressing room and there are brown M&Ms there, that means that we need to delay the show by two hours and we need to go over every safety feature um, within the, the stage setup. So, you know, if someone says, Hey, you know, if you're a purchaser and you're like, Hey, you know, can you send me over your financials? And the guy's like, Oh, let me put them together. Then you're like, yep. come on. That's the, that's a Brown M&M. 
you know, it's, just, so, uh, it's easier uh, to stay out than to funny, get out. Funny story with that. We have a funny story. When Startup Hustle made it onto the top charts for entrepreneurship podcasts, my often co-host and business partner, Matt Watson, I was joking about him making rock star demands. And he mentioned four pounds of green M&Ms. Yeah. Uh, someone, some one of you out there sent us four pounds of green <laughs> M&Ms and I, and we still don't know who, like, it was like, it was an anonymous gift that showed up at, at our office and we we're like, oh, wow. And no one has claimed that to date. So yeah, <laughs> real thing. but you're talking about that attention to detail and what you're referring to as a writer and, you know, musicians are notoriously bad for having weird stuff on it or being really easy about it. So, right. Okay. So, uh, you know, the, the building three websites that I've been down that road, um, that's not uncommon. The code that you have, uh, that your MVP is comprised of will probably not, not exist in a few years, either because you didn't make it or you had to remake it. Um, so now as resume, as resume grows and you're gaining traction and growing it, you know, like at what point did you realize that you were onto something that might have an exit value? You know, we always, we went into it um, with an exit in mind. We didn't go into it as a lifestyle business. We didn't go into it as, hey, let's build something that we're going to keep for 10, 15 years. We went into it with, hey, what can we build and when can we exit? And it actually took us longer to exit than we than than we anticipated. Um, but, you know, from the very start, we were looking at the business from a uh, potential buyer's point of view. Um, and we we were looking around and saying, okay, look, we, we can see that there are competitors in this business. Um, we're going to make a product that is as good. It doesn't have to be better, but it's as good as our competition. And we're, we will win because um, we have a better brand. You know, resume.com does what it says on the box, right? It's not resume um, guarded, right? It's not resume direct. It's not resume buckets. It's resumes. Dot com. And so that that little bit of inertia um, that, that gives you that bit of an edge, you know, if someone is looking at these two things and they're like, oh, should I build my resume on Resume Garden or should I build it on Resume.com? Well, I'll go with Resume.com. They look the same, right? even if the pricing is identical. So then we're like, okay, well, what can we do to, to give a, additional edge, right? Um, how do we make our, our product better? Um, we decided, let's be the Zappos. Because, um, you know, money back guarantee, you know, so we were a freemium service. So one and a half percent of our, our, our customer base was actually paying 98.5 were just free. So on that one and a half percent, we, our competitors were the, exactly the same, but they would make it extremely difficult to stop paying the subscription fee. And whereas we were like, you know what, that's not worth it. We wanted to, we don't want a negative review. Um, so if, if someone wasn't happy, or, just, or thousands of chargebacks, right, exactly. So, yeah. um, if, if someone wasn't happy, we just give them their money back. If you weren't happy three months in, give you all three months back. Um, and so, you know, in, even still, um, we, it, it just, um, we knew that we were being helpful to the 98 and percent with a money back guarantee. We were new, we were delivering value to our one and a half percent. And um, we were we knew we were delivering a product that was um, as good or better than our competitors. And so then Google starts to recognize that 
and they start to say, hey, you know, we didn't do any black hat, nothing gray on search engine optimization. Um, for the first five years, we didn't pay for any PPC. Uh, we didn't pay for any, um, any advertising. We were just focused on organic growth. And, you know, it, it worked. Um, and when we, when we really uh, realized that we had something is that we did A-B testing on our pricing. And it didn't matter what we charged, people would still upgrade and pay for um, our product. So, you know, that that was a real eye-opener for us because I was like, ah, oh, you know, we for what for that value, you know, we can only really charge like $5 a month. And so we did A-B testing. We tried it at $5, $9, $15. And we tried it at what our competitors were charging, which was 30 And it didn't really matter which price point we picked, our revenue stayed roughly the same. So, you know, at a higher price point, fewer people would upgrade, but it would still be the same amount of uh, of revenue. Um, and so we we're like, hey, we're, we're definitely delivering value here. Um, and, you know, was, was proving that science was OK. So these are all science experiments. Was proving that theory out valuable as you approach the exit? You know, it, it's a, it was valuable for us as a team because it enabled us to continue to bootstrap. It wasn't valuable to the purchaser because they looked at this as a complete lead gen um, website and they weren't interested in the revenue whatsoever. So when they were looking that, that at my, it- That was my next question. Were they interested in the users, the people that signed up or the revenue? So it was, it was in fact that they wanted to drive people in. Did we mention earlier who bought this from you? Uh, I don't, I didn't think we did. Um, it was indeed.com. Um, and it was actually in 2018, not 2017. Uh, that was my mistake. <laughs> you know, time, time flies by. Um, so yeah, indeed.com, um, you know, they're a very large job board and they generate their revenue from the employers looking for to hire, not from the job seekers. So when they looked at our property, um, they looked at it as a, as you know, search engine rankings, they looking at it as um, the, the number of customers in the database. You know, I don't think they even really cared, like you said, about the stack, the, the software stack that we use, right? Because they, they've got their own expertise. Um, but, you know, for us, uh, just coming back to, to looking at it, um, um, from a, the exit point of view, uh, when we were looking at potential purchasers, it was vitally important to us as a team that our team go with the purchaser. So we had a purchaser who was looking at us and said, you know, we're going to uh, just um, redirect your, your website over to ours. And, um, you know, we're going to get rid of this, uh, you know, Zappos style because um, we like making people jump through hoops and we're going to fire everybody. So um, you'd need to fire everyone before we bought the, uh, the you know, on transition and um, we'll pay more. And we said, no, we turned down more money. You know, we're not Wall Street um, where, you know, we, we built a family and we really, it was, so it was vitally important to us um, to the point that we put our money where our mouth is. We, we took less money um, from Indeed um, so that uh, they would take our entire team of 10 people because, you know, even even if I never see them again, those are ten families um, that we had worked with over the years. Um, that that uh, you know, it was important to us that um, you know, not just to have money in the bank, but to have a good um, outcome from it. 
Yeah. And you know, a lot of that, I mean, the, and you're right about that a lot. It's just the, the interest, the reasons that co bigger companies acquire smaller ones are all over the place. And, you know, Matt Watson sold Vent Solutions. And at the time, the Vent Solutions had, you know, that was a $150 million exit and they had five different products. They quit using four of them and just stuck with one. And, you know, they were interested in the revenue that was very significant, but really, it was so big companies acquire small ones. Oftentimes, like with resume, that drives people into a bigger platform. So these different verticals and you look at like, OK, we're going to acquire this. Yes, it's a tool that could help people make resumes to help them get jobs and find success on our platform. But how much would it cost to find all these users and introduce them themselves? And, you know, like it's not uncommon for companies to. All right. So some of these things that you see that do price comparison and shopping. Like you might see an airline buy one of them because it's cheaper to acquire it than to keep paying the affiliate fee uh, exactly. and just different stuff. So there's a lot of weird reasons when things start scaling up. Now, as you exited to Indeed, did you did you t make a careful? Were you careful to not relive the past agony that you had gone through? Yes, absolutely. It was an all cash deal. Um, there was no stock. Um, there, there was um, an earnout, so you know there was there was funds. Well, that... Let's explain what that. Let's, let's explain what that is. Yeah. So the, um, that 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 and it was a simple earnout for us. Um, it was basically you a certain percentage of the purchase price gets held in escrow at a law firm, and as long as you do as the as the seller, you do certain things um, and certain actions. You know, don't come out of the woodwork like a lawsuit or. Uh, claim from an employee, um, you know, just just uh, as, as long as nothing bad comes to light, then, you know, a year or two years later, um, the money is then released. And th that can be done on a different schedule. It can be done quarterly or six months or right on the anniversary. And it can be, you know, the earnout can be over several years. Uh, for us, we had a fairly short earnout of one year and um, a very easy um, targets to hit in that uh, we just had needed um, nothing bad to come out of the woodwork, right? So they're they're saying, look, you're when you're selling as a as a, a a company, you're signing representations and warranties, saying, hey, we represent that the the following, and we warranty that you know the following, and so you know they they need some type of a guarantee, so they like to hold back some of that purchase price um, to make sure that those things are what they say they are. And now uh, another question, I've talked to a lot of people that have had uh, successful exits and they describe it as anticlimactic, uh, meaning like, you know, you, you have all this like excitement going up to it and then you sign some papers the next day, there's money wired into your bank account. And then you're kind of like, okay, what do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, and you're like, you're in this earnout phase and an earnout's also to, to keep stability. Like you're, especially if you're like the CEO or the founder or the leader, if all of a sudden you're just gone like you're kind of like a wa living, breathing, walking owner's manual, you know, in some regards and, and that stability, and you might be the face of the brand they're, they're, you know, you're, it's your job to hand that over. Now, Ryan Reynolds, the actor, uh, last week had a pretty successful exit with a tequila company and it was, he made a really funny post. He's like, so I just learned what an earnout is. And for all of you that I told to F off yesterday, I take that back, uh, <laughs> which I, I don't know if he was serious about that, but it was like. 
I, I kind of picture that part in Half Baked where the guy quits the Burger King. He's like, F you, F you, F you, you're cool, and I'm out. And, yeah. then, and then you realize you need to stick around for a year. You're like, um, okay, well, well, once again with us today, Richard Lau. Richard's the founder of a lot of different things, currently Logo.com. Uh, now, I want to say that you have a counter on Logo.com, and it's just been open on a browser since we started. And uh, several hundred people have made a logo at Logo.com during this podcast, including me. I, che I checked it out, and I thought it was pretty cool. Um, now, you mentioned bands earlier. Sometimes Finding a name for your business and picking a logo is as is, is difficult as determining what your band name is, which many musicians will tell you is the hardest part of the whole entire story. Uh, so logos are tricky and, and, you know, something like logo.com can help you with that. Now we, and thanks for joining Richard. This is, I think these kind of real stories about the path and the road are important. We're going to wrap up with what we call the founders freestyle. Is there a, just a, a minute of advice that you can give any founder that wants to follow in the footsteps that you, that you've gone down or gone through? You know, I mean, there's been uh, a couple sayings from my my former bosses. Um, one has been um, a, a lifesaver for me, which is it's easier to stay out than to get out. You know, as entrepreneurs, we often say yes when we should be saying no. Um, and then the the other is to young people, which is build your network. You know, get your LinkedIn profile up, reach out to people. You know, people are everyone's human, right? And and um, we we. Uh, one of the driving factors is uh, is to be um, significant, and it's not a, it's not all about the money. It's all about you know what impact can you have? Can you be helpful? And so one of my sayings is um, you know I'm here to be helpful, and you know reach out if you've got if you're a startup and you're like, dude, I can't afford twenty dollars for a logo. Reach out, hit me up. I'm Richard at Logo.com. Chances are you tell me your story, I'll give you a free logo. Right? Just ask, just ask, reach out. And you know, you, when you see Matt and you're like, Hey, I'm going to send him four pounds of M&Ms and then I'm going to call him for some advice. You know, you're, you might be in university, might be in high school, just reach out, you know, just build, don't, don't hesitate. And I wish I had done that when I was young. And I wish I had someone tell me to do that because man, I, I look back and I'm like, Oh, that was a missed opportunity. That was a missed opportunity. That was a missed opportunity. Um, just uh, build your network see what you can do to help others in your network and, um, and just, you know, yeah, be helpful. I, I think that's all great advice. And I think one thing that I'd like everyone listening to take note is like Richard said, don't be afraid to ask. Cause here's the thing. So I'm 45 years old. And when I was 25, I was asking and people were taking an interest in me and giving me, giving me information, mentorship, advice, like stuff that uh, some of which I didn't even fully process or understand until years later. But it stuck with me. And the thing is, is, is those someone did that for those people. And knowledge isn't something that's meant to be kept. It's meant to be passed on. It's meant to be transferred. And much like the old the story of the village elder that passed the history of the tribe down from years to years to years, entrepreneurs and founders are the same way. Like, I've been in your seat. I've been in your boat. I know what it's like. And someone helped me out. And, and really, in the end, it's so much easier to ask those that are on top to pull you up than try to climb up by yourself in many cases. And there's always someone that is in a position to pull you up. Now, they have a decent vantage point to kick you in the face and watch you roll back down. But eh, you're going to find that's not really what people are doing. So 
overall, well, Richard, thank you so much for sharing the story. If those of you out there get a chance, go to logo.com, make a logo, reach out to Richard. I found him on Facebook. He, 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 he protects his connection request, but he gave you his email. So if you go back and figure that out, you can send that on. <laughs> so anyway, I'll see you next time, Richard. Thanks, Matt. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.